The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And take a little time, if you need to, to stretch the body so you'll be comfortable. Anybody who came in late, make sure you have a place to sit that's comfortable for you. There may be some additional chairs in the corner if you're looking. And again, a big welcome. So I've been uh, started last Sunday with uh, maybe it'll turn out to be three talks on the maybe strangely liberating potential of mindful awareness, and it is sort of amazing, you know, especially here in the West now, it's kind of become a thing, awareness practice, mindfulness practice, both in sort of Buddhist settings, like Kamagans, the Buddhist meditation center, but just uh, in a lot of secular settings. I don't think you can find too many hospitals or medical facilities that aren't teaching classes uh, therapists and, you know, places where people get therapeutic services where you don't find classes on mindfulness. It's like having a day. <laughs> and uh, I said last week, it's, it's appropriate to ask, well, what is the big deal about mindful awareness? And the short answer is you got to check it out for yourself because whatever I say or anybody says, it just remains abstract or theoretical, we have to see what is the effect going forward, like functionally in my life, what is the actual effect of me being interested in, and keeping in mind presence, as opposed to going through life lost in thought or distracted, what changes when we in a sense, we uh, create a counterweight to the habits of distraction, being caught up in our thoughts, being identified with our emotions. It's not that we're going to ever stop having thoughts and emotions, right? It's really more a matter of how the mind is showing up, how the mind is observing or connecting with our life, with our experience with awareness or without awareness. And our first step, like in order for each of us, because we have to check it out for ourselves, in order to check it out for ourselves, we actually have to know what it is to be aware. Like what does it mean to be awake, to be present? And there's a big difference between, because a lot of the first idea that will come to us is like, oh, I'm going to focus my attention, I'm going to put my attention on my breath or on my body or on my prayer or mantra or on this visualization, and I'm going to hold my attention here. And that's what being awake, being aware, being mindful means. And often when we do that, we get a headache. You know, just like if we focus or watch too many TV shows in a row or, you know, concentrate on one thing, 
it can make the mind tight. That doesn't mean there isn't something to that skill of holding our attention on one thing. It's, it's like a, it's useful to know how to do that with our mind. But when we talk about Buddhist awareness practice, mindfulness practice, we're really talking about something different. It's not so much about what you do with your mind. It's more about recognizing this capacity the mind has to be awake or to be aware. So we're keeping in mind this particular capacity like we have right now. But we don't really trust that capacity to be aware. And it's an inclusive Like I may bring my attention to my body or to the breath coming in and the breath going out or bring my attention to hearing. But as I learn to trust that being open to some specific experience, then you're going to realize that the totality of your present moment experience is right there. Like I always use... It's nice, just something simple, like feeling your hand on your thigh or whatever the hand's touching. Just feeling that experience of touching. Keeping that in mind. So whatever that experience of touching, contact, Notice that everything else that's being known is right there. It's not like the present moment has compartments. My hand touching my thigh is over here. Hearing sounds is over there. Aware of the thoughts here. It's like it's all here and now. So in order to really understand what we mean by being present, We have to sense that inclusive nature of what we call the present moment. It's not a divided, compartmentalized, fragmented experience. And we want to be able to intuit that in any moment, like any time we're prompted, like right now. Can we sense the inclusive nature of what's here and now? And, tr- and then beginning more and more, at least, to trust that. Because a lot of what we're doing in our practice is we're aligning with the truth of the way it is. Which is, no wonder it's peaceful, because that means we're abandoning being in conflict with the way it is. And it's really, I know it sounds incredibly simplistic, But that's kind of the crux of the deal. Are we going to be willing now, in any moment, so why not now, even as you're hearing me speak, are we going to be interested in that opening and aligning and trusting, that softening and widening with the way it already is here and now? Or are we going to be 
attached, identified, being a somebody who's trying to get somewhere, a somebody trying to have some experience. And truthfully, we'll go back and forth, you know, but that's great because then we can compare like what actually turns out to be more wholesome, more helpful. Me, a sense of a me trying to become somebody, trying to get somewhere, trying to have some experience, or that kind of relaxing back, that trusting that this is already being felt, this is already being known, it's already like this. And that's that aligning, we're aligning with reality. You know, it's funny to say, of course, like, yeah, I think I'll, why not? I think I'll become somebody who's in allegiance with reality. (laughs) Because whether we ever say it out loud, what were our actions, what our actions prove is like, no way am I going to be in allegiance with reality. I don't like reality. I don't like how it feels. I don't like how it is to be me. So I'm going to spend my life in conflict with reality, with this idea that my mind is fixed on. I'm here and I want to be somewhere else. I want to be somebody else. I want to get somewhere else. Which means I don't want to be here feeling what I'm feeling, knowing what I'm knowing. I want to be somewhere else, somebody else. And when we do then just have a moment of dropping in and sensing, feeling, well, we're going to feel what it feels like to have been mostly in conflict with the present moment for so long. It won't feel pleasant. Being present will feel like this, this is a huge mistake. Now I understand why I'm so addicted to distraction, entertainments, the news, conversation, whatever we fill our lives up with. Because we've lost the taste for the present moment. And either it's because we're feeling the residual pain, the unavoidable residual pain of having been so disconnected, or we've uh, weirdly gotten addicted to the intensity, the drama of struggling to be somebody else, to get somewhere else, to have a different experience. And even though that drama, and most of us, and you know, each of us in different ways, but even though the drama and the dependency on drama and identifications and hopes and fears, it's, you know, it's intense, it's tight, but it's also strangely um, enlivening, right? There seems to be a lot of juiciness there. So we, it's understandable that we do get addicted, even though it doesn't lead anywhere. It just leads to more dependence on what's juicy and dramatic, As uh, one of my teachers says, you know, 
A lot of people really like the idea of peace, <laughs> but not so much the experience of peace initially. But it's a little bit like someone who's been addicted to whatever. You know, I, I make a joke about Doritos or those chips that have a lot of flavor, you know. And then, you know, we have oatmeal with no flavors, <laughs> not even cinnamon. You know. And it can feel like such an insult. Like life is betraying us because it's so ordinary. It's like, have you noticed if you've been watching a really good program and then it's over and you're alone at home? It's just like, it's so unpleasant <laughs> to just be with our ordinary experience of the present moment without, because, you know, remember like the, uh, the kind of intelligence and the uh, capacity of technology to create something engaging. It's really amazing. It sucks us in. And it's just seemingly so much more interesting than reality. The only thing we can think of is, you know, finding another program or getting something to eat or talking to somebody about how great that show was. But we want more. I mean, it's really, I haven't been addicted to heroin, but, you know, we hear about people who have a strong addiction to some chemical and how hard it is to detox from that whatever it is. And we're all addicts in our own way to this intensity, the drama, to self-centeredness. That's the ultimate bottom line addiction. All the other addictions are different expressions of this addiction to selfing. And what the self wants and what the self doesn't want. That's what actually runs the show. And so when we're sitting, doing our formal practice every day, maybe 30 minutes, maybe 45, maybe 10 minutes, for those of you who are really raising kids or whatever, can't afford a lot of time, but everyone has some time. And we sit down, generally sitting is the best posture, but you know, even lying down in savasana, that corpse pose can work, or standing, or walking, when some of you know, when Fricky, the other co-founder of Common Ground, one of our main teachers here at the center, when we can get when, because um, she's busy um, teaching at McAllister College, which from where I live, where we live, is about four and a quarter miles, something like that. And when has gotten into the habit now of walking to and from work, because it, it's really good meditation practice, you know. Sometimes she'll listen to guided meditations on her earphones, you know, but just being with the feeling that we humans feel. There is always, for us humans, a river of feeling. Right now, just check. Aren't you feeling something? You know, we use that word heart or mind a lot. The Pali word is chitta. And chitta, the heart-mind, that's where we feel what we're feeling. 
So are you feeling anything? So even if you're feeling numbness, that's a feeling. Like whatever, however nondescript the feeling is for you right now, that's what you're feeling. Or maybe what you're feeling is hot or hard or dead or fiery or light and buoyant, joyful. There's lots and lots of different feelings. And never is there a moment when we humans aren't exposed and vulnerable to feeling what it feels like to be, to have a mind and a body, to have a life, an existence. Oh, this is how it feels. Now, the hardest thing, because it's not our habit, is to actually be interested. Even as we're doing all the busy stuff we have to do, living our life, navigating our duties and responsibilities, can we keep remembering it feels like this? It's another way of understanding this, like, can we remain vulnerable to feeling? the feeling that's being felt. Can we remain vulnerable, exposed, sensitive, that kind of raw feeling? You know, because that's what it means to be a sensitive being, which we are, by the way. And to the degree we're willing to do that, that means to that degree we're not the being who's struggling to not feel what we're feeling. It is such a relief to not be the one who's running and hiding and denying, covering up, projecting on this raw, ongoing river of feeling. You know, we have these Habits, people, friends, partners, kids, ask us, how are you feeling? <laughs> but, you know, it's just we just have a default answer most of the time. We rarely actually check. And the key is the sustaining of that interest. Because, you know, there's so much defensiveness built in It's like a kind of emotional Teflon, like, don't feel. (laughs) So we're invited, like someone asks us sincerely, you know, how are you doing? And it's like this Teflon, you know, you're fine. But there's something, this, I call it sometimes a a soft, penetrating power of present moment awareness, but it depends on that sustaining of interest in how it is, this river of feeling, how it is. Like keeping that river, that vulnerability. I always bring to mind, some of you remember in Catholicism, I grew up as a Catholic, you know, we had these statues and the the saints, Mother Mary and St. Joseph and St. Francis, these, that's who I had in my bedroom, you know, those, with my two brothers, you know, big statues, and they were like 13 inches or so. 
And they all had their hearts kind of sitting out in front of their normal heart area. You've probably seen that. It's kind of part of the iconography and Catholicism. And uh, it's really, I think, a powerful, useful spiritual image. You know, we all have our images like the statues, a sort of sublime peacefulness is generally what in Buddhist, you know, iconography they're trying to convey, like being at ease no matter the conditions. That's kind of the task for the artist. But in, I don't, you know, I don't know that much, even though I grew up, had a pretty good experience as a Catholic being a kid, in my case, at least. Um, I'm not sure the, you know, all the ins and outs of Catholic, you know, iconography, like why those pictures, even, you know, the crucifixion, the cross, is kind of an interesting spiritual symbol. But one thing you got to hand it to them, it's like, talk about being real, like, life is hard. Sometimes you get crucified, you know, with nails through your hands. And But actually, there's a lot of denial about suffering. So it, not that people use these images effectively, but it's not the, the problem isn't the image. <laughs> the problem is our capacity at being oblivious and deny, in denial, right? So, and the other thing, you know, with these statues with the heart exposed, like, oh, maybe they're trying to tell us something, that the way, the practice, is not being immune from the way it is, but lining up. That sensitivity isn't a problem, sensitivity is the way. And I often think of this in terms of, uh, you know, this is often how things work, where we get opposites that work together. Like even what we would generally stereotypically call masculine and feminine in our society. You know, it's not about being one or the other. I mean, you may identify as you identify, but all of us, to be healthy, we have to understand how both of these tendencies, the receptive and the assertive, let's say, how can I manifest, how can I learn to be unafraid of being receptive, of at times yielding. How can I learn to be assertive, to speak truth, to speak up, to fill space, to take space, when that's the skillful thing to do? We all have to find our way. And it's the same thing with sensitivity, that uh, exposure, and the vulnerability, right? That requires a kind of wisdom. Wisdom is that understanding that it's like this, and it's okay that it's like this. It's that understanding that comprehends it can't be other than the way it is right now. In other words, it doesn't really make sense ultimately to be in denial or to push away. And that wisdom to develop needs the sensitivity and the sensitivity needs the wisdom. There's no way we're going to be willing to feel what we're feeling 
unless there's some growing, deepening wisdom that understands it's okay to be feeling what you're feeling. And remember, it's not just the pain or the fear or whatever, the unpleasantness of what we feel, but it's also really hard for us to feel joy, to feel alive, to feel energy. It's interesting, when we're feeling a lot of energy, we tend to clamp down like, oh, I'm not so sure I feel safe with that much energy moving. Maybe I'll dull it out, take a stiff drink, you know, or whatever, because I'm not sure it's safe to be feeling this much. And then when we're dead to the world, we want to feel more and more, we want more energy, and when we have too much energy, we want to like cool it down. But what wisdom understands is, yeah, sometimes it's like this. There's a lot of energy. Sometimes it's like this. Dead to the world, no energy. It's like birth and death. Sometimes there's birth, something new is bursting forth. Sometimes it feels like nothing's happening. But can we live our life as if that's okay? In those moments when we really feel like nothing's happening? Same old, same old, another Sunday morning, another Monday morning, another commuting into work, another empty conversation with my person I live with, another walking the dog, you know, another stupid TV show, another this, another meal. And... uh The key with our practice, you know, the sensitivity and the wisdom that is comprehending the way it is. When I say comprehending, I'm not talking about cognitively. It's really that exposure to feeling, what we're feeling, the exposure to the reality of the way it is, to what's moving, the comprehension, the intuitive understanding just comes from the continuity of that exposure. That's how wisdom deepens. Not from the sense of me cognitively figuring out the way it is, or me reading, or hearing talks. We hear talks, or we read things, and then if it inspires us, we actually start to pay attention to the way it is. We learn to trust this capacity we all have to be sensitive. And then this is the real important part. We sustain it. It's not enough to be awake, aware, sensitive, feeling what we're feeling for one moment. The real power in that, the transformative power, is in the sustaining of present moment awareness, keeping it in mind. And remember, sati, the word we usually translate as awareness or mindful awareness. Sati really has roots in the word to remember, like keeping in mind. That's what sati does. It knows how to keep in mind what is valuable to keep in mind. And in our Buddhist practice, what's valuable to keep in mind is the way it actually is not the idea we might have about the way it is, but this, what we're feeling, what's here and now, 
the exposure to here and now. And it's quite alive. Uh, there's a passage I like from um, um, uh, Wendell Berry, if you know a naturalist. And this is from, <clears throat> I think it's an essay called The Unforeseen Wilderness. And he wrote, Always in the big woods, when you leave familiar ground and step off alone into a new place, there will be, along with the feelings of curiosity and excitement, a little nagging of dread. It is the ancient fear of the unknown, and it is your first bond with the wilderness that you are going into. What you are doing is exploring. You are undertaking the first experience, not of the place, but of yourself in that place. It is an experience of essential loneliness, for nobody can discover the world for anyone else. It is only after we have discovered it for ourselves that it becomes a common ground and a common bond, and we cease to be alone. And I like that because it kind of describes our primary responsibility as a spiritual person. Like we have to cultivate a relationship, we could say just simplistically, with our life. But it has nothing to do with our idea of who I am or what's important to me. It's always wild. It's the wildness of the present moment. Because when we're opening and feeling what we're feeling like right now, it always has that flavor of being unknown or wild. Because what we're feeling right now, it's never about what we think we're feeling. The idea, you know, the words we might tell ourselves, that's not what we're feeling. Those are... Uh, that's a thought. That's part of what's moving here and now. But it's not what we're feeling. And this is really comes back to what we mean by our subjective experience. The way it is. Dhamma. That's our dharma. It's a word that's used a lot in Buddhism. Buddha. Wakefulness. Being awake. Buddha wakes up to Dhamma. That's the basic essence of our practice. Being awake to the way it is. Being open. Not, and it's any thought we might have, if it points us to this more immediate, open sensitivity, then those are good thoughts, useful thoughts. But if they're thoughts that just lead to more thoughts, that's called mental proliferation. In Pali, it's papancha. And that is, you know, the, the wise ones, the awakened ones, are defined by not being addicted to papancha. That's like one of the ways the Buddha defines someone who's awake. They're not caught up in mental proliferation. Their mind isn't dependent doesn't mean that our mind, a mind of an awakened one, isn't thinking. 
It just means the mind isn't dependent, caught in whatever thoughts. Thoughts become a useful tool to be used when that tool is useful. But we're in a place where, you know, we're actually afraid when we're not attached to our thoughts about things. We have to cultivate a relationship to here and now that's not dependent on our thoughts. doesn't mean there aren't thoughts. It's a non-dependence, a non-fixation. It's like we're equally sensitive to the space between the thoughts as we are with the thoughts themselves. Thoughts are just another thing in the forest. You know, there's sound, there's sights, sensations, thoughts, emotions. All of it is here and now. In the great wilderness, the great unknown, because on that level, you know, our thoughts make things seem like we know something. Oh, I know, I'm Mark Nunberg, you know. But that's not my subjective experience. Our subjective experience is a little bit more like a freefall, this river, this endless exposure to what we're feeling, never-ending, unceasing feeling, feeling. And the more we align with that, then wisdom really deepens. And that wisdom becomes fearless and loving and unflappable, unshakable, and released. Meaning, that wisdom, that mind, that heart, isn't dependent on anything fixed. It isn't neurotically looking for solid ground, which is the kind of basic definition of us worldly humans, you know, us not yet enlightened human beings, right? We were characterized by constantly looking for solid ground. But maybe we don't need solid ground. Maybe we don't need, like, uh, some deal with the devil that takes care of our fear of death, or fear of loss, fear of financial ruin, fear of physical pain. Maybe we can live our life with that exposure to all of those things, because I don't see a way around it. Wide open. Released doing what is for our own well-being and the well-being of others and the well-being of both. But not in fear, not with greed, not fixed at all. That's the flavor of awakening. And it's really that sensitivity working with the deepening of understanding and how they work together. And really taking advantage of sensitivity instead of thinking of it as a problem that I have to manage. God, if only I didn't feel so much. If only things didn't bother me. If only I weren't so vulnerable to what you think about me. Didn't need to be seen a particular way. Didn't, wasn't so dependent on becoming somebody or avoiding not wanting to be the person I am or the person I think I am. How can I not be that person? 
who's whatever, you know, sick or overweight or addicted to this or who did that terrible thing. Over and over we create and recreate health for ourselves and for each other. So it's really up to each of us to check it out. Is there some kind of liberating potential, actual, functionally liberating for me, not for others, for me in this life that has to do with this coming together of wisdom and this sensitivity, this that comes with being awake or aware, present moment awareness. And we can just, sitting, daily sitting practice is just a time during the day when we create the optimal conditions for it. It's not actually different than daily life practice. It's just that the room's quieter and we're holding the body relatively still, whatever our posture is, sitting, standing, lying down, walking easily back and forth. We're creating optimal conditions. That's what our formal daily meditation practice. And then the rest of the day is just practicing with conditions as best we can. Being sensitive and sensing that wisdom that understands that it's okay. One teacher described the instructions as do your best, but now again, whether you're doing your formal daily sit or you're out doing your life, do your best to find sense and keep in mind the natural ease that's available in your body. Which just means, it doesn't mean your body feels good, it means the sensitivity, the sensitive heart and mind is willing to be at ease with what you're feeling in the body. Okay, And then, see if you can find your natural capacity to be at ease with what your heart is sensitive to, other than your body. Like emotions, mood. Oh yeah, it feels like this. And then, the third instruction is, can you stay interested in whatever seems to interrupt that natural ease? That capacity to be at ease with what you're feeling in your body, and what you're feeling in your heart. Stay interested in whatever seems to justify getting tight. Oh, that's interesting. The heart's tight. Can I be at ease with that? Not like, oh, stop that, Mark. You're supposed to be at ease with your body and mind. Oh, it's like, oh, that's interesting. It seems like somebody needs to be armored. Somebody needs to be tight. The first step is, can I be at ease with that tightness? Because that's how it is right now, right? This is the feeling I'm feeling. Being tight feels like this. Being afraid feels like this. Being envious feels like this. Being upset feels like this. Being excited feels like this. Can this be okay? Can I be at ease? Oh, yeah. Like I can feel, this is part of the human experience, isn't it? All of those things, being tight. So it's always the stepping back and realizing this is just another feeling being felt. 
It's not stepping back and judging myself for the feeling I'm feeling. It's stepping back in a sense. We're not really stepping back. It's actually more accurate to say we're stepping into. But we're stepping into, can it be okay? So I'll come back one more week next week and we'll continue this discussion. But the children are going to come in. For those of you here in the room, we're going to sing a new song with all the kids. And those of you online, it's an opportunity to uh, meet in small groups if you want. Otherwise, I'll just mention that uh, uh, for those of you who live in the Twin Cities next Sunday in the afternoon, 1.30 to 3.30, uh, Patrice Kalsch and Kyoko Karayama, two of our longtime teachers, are going to be leading in our annual Day of Remembrance. For anybody who's grieving, whether you just want to support others who are grieving or you've had a loss in the last few years, just a nice, beautiful community event next Sunday afternoon. We have our twice annual maintenance day, Saturday, so you can come and take care of the building and then have lunch together. That's next Saturday, the 28th. And then there's lots of opportunities to get out to the retreat center um, almost every weekend over the next month and a half. So just check the weekly email. That's where most of the information is. You can get on our weekly email list on our website or just send the center an email asking to get on that and you'll get that weekly email with all the program updates, all the information you need to have. So for those online, uh, please stay if you want to be in a small group and uh, you can just discuss for 15 minutes. John, would you be willing to close the groups if I make you uh, John G, uh, program host? Great, appreciate that. I'll make you host. Okay, John, your host. Do you know how to divide people up, John? Otherwise, I can uh, do that for you. And uh, one of the hosts, if you could tell the kids that they can come in now. So, John, you just go under uh, all the way at the bottom and just do the breakout groups all the way at the bottom on the right. And then it will say breakout groups. And then you just count how many people there are, divide by three, and then you can divide them up. Oh, look what they did. Okay. <laughs> it's such a beautiful day. Kids are, yeah, so I think they're going to come home, parents. So. <laughs> Otherwise, you have more freedom to practice. But anyway, if you want to stay here for small groups, uh, I'll divide you up with... Uh, Jenny and the others, and wait groups of three or four, and you can just have a conversation, your own experience. Otherwise, hope to see you next Sunday. Just hang out if you want to be in small groups. John, are you all set? Okay. Great. Then I'll say goodbye. Actually, it looks like Lucy's here today. I thought she wasn't going to be. You could make Lucy uh, uh, host too because she knows how to do it if you need help.
All the way to the bottom on the right usually is the uh, device. Otherwise, you can just have a group of nine or however many of you are. Right, anyway, I'll say goodbye to both of you. Thanks for hanging in there, John and Jessica. Still looking for a group? Kim, you can help people who are looking for groups form groups. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.